This episode of Driven Minds Podcast is brought to you by Michael Levin of Whitecourt Realty. If you're looking for a new place to live or real estate investment opportunity in Orange County, New York, contact Michael Levin at mlevin at whitecourt.com. That's M-L-A-V-A-N at W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T.com. Another episode of Driven Minds, your host Franz Bowen. It's your co-host Travis Weeks. We have another dope, special, interesting, absolutely uh, 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 bossy entrepreneur in the building today. Go ahead, let my my man Travis do the honors. Yeah, man, the guy Jonathan Jackson from Blavity, co-founder of Blavity. That's good. Thank you for being here, man. Um, I like to start off sometimes with how I, you know, meet some of our guests and um. I had an event this year, Impact Culture, and I've been a fan of Blavity. Like, I love what Blavity represents. He'll tell you more about what Blavity represents, but um, I seen uh, people were coming into the event, coming inside, and I seen this one guy with a Blavity shirt on. I'm like, yo, I got to make sure I talk to this guy before the event is over, just to see if he works or if he knows anybody from Blavity. And, hey, you know what? We were leaving the event. It was concluding, and I ran up on him. And uh, was definitely uh, the co-founder, Jonathan, man. And um, that's our relationship started. He's gave me great advice. We, we've built. And uh, now we, you know, we're honored to have him on our podcast, man. It's a pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. So, Jonathan, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, yeah. firstly, and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Blavity. Yeah, man, happy to. So, as Travis, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the co-founders of Blavity. I have three other ones, right? So, we have our founder and CEO, Morgan. Our COO, Aaron, and our CTO, Jeff. Big up the squad. Um, yeah, squad. it's a squad. Um, and so my role specifically is around um, strategic partnerships and really like the ideology of what Blavity means and what it stands for. So um, at its core level, Blavity exists to tell, amplify, and share the stories of black millennials from their perspective and point of view that has otherwise been ignored um, or um, detrimentally um, packaged and shared by mainstream media. So uh, the purpose is to make sure that we have a voice since we spend most of our time making culture but never being rewarded for it fiscally or otherwise. Absolutely. Uh, so that's what I do, and I spend a lot of time thinking about where we should be, the rooms we should be in, who we should be talking to, the places we could actually have an impact and give back. Um and tactically, right, like what would it look like for us to be operating at our highest level um, as a company, as a business, but then um, collectively, right? Like what, what things could we do to give back and make sure that um, as many people are eating as possible? Absolutely. Because what's dope is that um, for Blavity, I think it was kind of like one of the first news media's outlets to me that kind of um, encompassed black culture and we able to like, 
put it out there in a way we kind of consume it, right? Like, it speaks to that, you know, the young woman entrepreneur that also has a job that, mm-hmm. you know, has to be professional during her day, but playing trap music in her, in her headphones on the train to work. Right. You know what I mean? It speaks to that, you know, that one guy who's, you know, trying to create content, trying mm-hmm. to, you know, have his own party series. Mm-hmm. He could find his voice on there, and it's like the first, you know, platform that, uh, that showcasing all of that. Now, this this idea was this. How was this born? Yeah, man. So it goes back deeper, right? So I, I mentioned I have three other co-founders, and we all went to school together. So we went to a school called Washington University in St. Louis, and black people at that school were, I think, the number was around like four, five percent, and they'd always add in a percent because they attached the grad school in. Right. Um, and so if you're really thinking about, you know, what we were studying, like you don't really see black people in your classes. I'm a poli sci major. So chances are you see maybe one to two people, you know, in the entire day if you're in your core classes. And then imagine you're an engineer. So like you might not even see people in your class, but you might have them in like a study group and you just gravitate towards each other. So on our campus, there was a word that described that and there was a location for it. So the word was blavity, right? So the word black and gravity together. Mm. And then there was a physical location where that happened and that was in our middle of our lunchroom. Um, and it was like a round table. It could fit at most like really only 10 people on like a bad day. Um, when I was there, like sophomore, junior year, it was like a cool 15, 20 people. People would just grab chairs. And it was the nexus of black life, right? It was like people would go there to cram for tests. If you needed notes that you should have taken but didn't, you would get them there. Upperclassmen would give the game out. People hmm. from other campuses would come because um, St. Louis is, is actually a, a bit of a college town. So there's like a solid four to five universities around. Um, you have SLU, Harris-Stowe, um, a couple other universities around there. So you would actually have people come and promote parties and they'd leave the flyers on the table. Like People knew that this was where this you had the, the highest propensity to find black people right, during right. the school day. Um, and so that was something that we I know I needed. It benefited me. Mm. When we graduated, um, Morgan, our CEO, went to um, Silicon Valley and was working out there. And I actually moved out there to work at LinkedIn. And she sat me down at... Um, picnic table and was like I have this idea about this thing I want to build and I had no idea what she was talking about but Morgan was the youngest student body president in history she's always been a mover she's a boss she's official and so I was like you know what this seems interesting why not um and at the time it was I was still trying to piece together but that's the thing about people that have specific kinds of visions um they're able to get the type of people around them that can help that um come to fruition Right. And I think that makes it really special. So Morgan was the one that sort of um, brought that idea and had that vision to life. And then she found myself and Aaron and Jeff and was like, there are specific things that I know I can't do by myself. And that's one of the things that makes her special. Shout out to Morgan. Um, because, and she said this on many occasions, like if you have a vision that only you can bring to bear, it's probably not big enough. Mm. It's probably not like you probably need a team like if your vision only requires you to do it right. you haven't pushed yourself to the limit because you actually should have other people that you collectively um bring into the fold now right, you can right. start it off yourself but like really you should think bigger for yourself and and for what you want to be doing so that's an ill perspective absolutely so talk a little bit about you mentioned that you worked at linkedin yeah. um being a poli sci major how did that 
where where was your uh, directionality after school? Did you want to do LinkedIn, or is that an opportunity that kind of just fell in your lap? Uh, man, so it's all about relationships for me. Like I, I pride myself on having positive ones. I, um, those are that to me is one of the most important skills that I have is building actual relationships with people. I don't take them for granted. So in undergrad. I actually entered in a semester late, so I was part of something called the January program, where they just randomly picked 50 students and had them start a semester later for no other reason other than there actually wasn't enough housing on campus. So the upside was that you got to live in upperclassmen housing as a freshman, which was dope. Mm. The downside was you miss your freshman semester of college, mm. which for anybody that did go to college, you realize like that's when you figure some things out right. or realize like you have no idea what's going on. So what did they have you doing for so, August to Yeah, so there were you would go to you would visit campus for um four distinct times and take classes for credits. And then some people went abroad and like were in Italy and studying. I was uh, working two jobs and then taking community college classes. So I was working, I was still working in Marshalls. And then I think I was doing some other like consulting and whatnot. Mm. Um, shout out to the domestics department in Marshalls. <laughs> uh, my towel folding game is crazy. Uh, you know what I mean? But uh, we're a young skills for life. Facts, man. I can go in Marshalls and get fitted for like a cool forty. But I'm, I'm unstoppable in Marshalls. Uh, Marshalls got some so, some some stuff on the low. Yeah, you, you I mean, know what I mean? Man, like, you need candles, whatever. I can really take you on a tour. Uh, <laughs> say that though. But I was doing that and then taking community college classes because I didn't want to have to graduate late. So I only had three and a half semesters to get things cracking. Um, so when I um, you know, entered, I really wanted to study sociology. Like I love what people think and like sort of how society functions. I don't think I read the pamphlet clear enough because WashU didn't have a sociology department when I got there. So I showed up oh, and was like, oh, like, so is there a sociology department? They were like, no. And oh, I was like, wow. cool. So then I went and looked in the actual um, faculty um, registration and then basically did like a keyword search for sociology. And then I realized that all the sociologists were adjunct. And so they were just teaching in the poli-sci department. So wow. I was like, well, the closest thing I could do is to just take all the classes that these sociologists are teaching mm. in the poli-sci department. And so that's what I did. Um, and actually, I really enjoyed it, right? Like, I don't like the what politics does to people but i appreciate how you can actually realize what groups of people will do when they are given a story that they have no choice but to believe in and so understanding that has given me a, a pretty distinctive perspective and i really i understood what's happening when i turn on my tv and mm -hmm. so for me that's actually really really valuable right. um as it relates to my career like i never really knew man i i'm, I'm, a, I'm a curious person um, I like to combine things that seemingly look like they are at complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And that, that brings me joy when I can sort of tell a story with things that people normally wouldn't think um, as having interest or being important. And so I, you know, for all my experiences in undergrad, I was always looking for that. I was always trying to tell dope stories. So, mm. um, you know, I had an internship. Uh, my first summer um, coming out of school where I was writing content for um, an actual um, social media agency. Um, and it was like, I was doing like Facebook copy for, uh, I think it was an orthodontist's office in Texas, hmm. right? And so like, you would, it was like my first time ever working remote. 
Um, and so you basically, you get like a sheet in the morning and my supervisor would be, okay, we need to come up with like interesting, thought-provoking stuff to get people to actually build, to engage with this orthodontist office mm. on Facebook, uh, which is actually really hard. Because yeah, you're not looking for your orthodontist. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> in 2011, right? right. At all. Probably, I think Farmville was raining them times. Yeah. So you know that was sort of my first experience to that. You know, digitally telling story, the storytelling, right. right? And then from there, um, I got an internship in PR for a um, GPS company. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. So I ended up building their holiday gift guide. Then I went to General Mills. And worked in marketing, um, and then I actually turned down that job offer. So that was actually a turning point, Mike. There'd be a couple of turning General, points. The Mike. cereal, yeah, cereal. So General Mills is like they make cinnamon they make, toast. Crunch. Yeah, they make everything. Anything you eat, I chances are General Mills crunch. is involved. It's my favorite. Cereal. Um, and so I moved to Minneapolis that summer, and it was working out there. Mm. And they do a lot of recruiting in the Midwest. Had a good summer, but I realized like it was too big for me. And I realized, like, mm. I wanted to have a bigger impact. I wouldn't be able to there. And I also was just, like, things move really slow, right? So you're talking about a multinational corporation, you know, 300,000 workers globally. Um, and it takes them two years to move from, you know, Windows XP to Windows 7. Damn. Like, just, I, like, at scale. Like, it takes yeah. them that long to implement. They have to hire somebody else as a consultant to, just like, to, like back up their yeah. whole system. Right. And agree with and the so that And, like, imagine if you have a new product innovation, how long it's going to take you to get approval. Right, yeah. right, right. If you come in with new ideas and new things, like, you're, you're just going to get lost in the sauce. That's not even R&D. No, not, no. That's not. That's IT itself, right. fully. So I, I was, like, scared of that. So I turned down my only job offer under my senior year. Um, they called my mom. Wow. How did that feel? I was it was nerve wracking, but I knew it wasn't right. And so, you know, thinking through, you know, what that felt like, and to even where I'm where I'm at now, I think there've always been moments and choices that I've had to make that I, you know, had to think about where I was at and zoom out and take a landscape view of of not just my career but what I wanted for myself. So I turned that down, and all my friends, right? I have I my my the team I, I I I call closer, like they're all pretty much hit her. So everybody I knew was getting consulting offers. They're working on Wall Street. People were going to grad school. They were doing TFA. They were moving internationally. Um, people were getting road scholarships. So you just over well, here turn it down. Turn, I turned down my only job. My only job. My only offer. <laughs> my only offer. Wow. And then got rejected from 30 more. So, oh, um, you know, my, um, I had a, a, a mentor of mine who actually ended up at LinkedIn at the time and he had heard through my current girlfriend at the time that I was looking for a job. And he called me and was like, yo, Jonathan, um, there's this opportunity out West. Like, what do you, um, you know, what are you interested in? And I was like, man, I'm just, I feel like I, I didn't work this hard to, to come here and not have something to do after grad. Like, I can't go home. Like, I'm not, like, that's not, that's not it. Mm-hmm. And so he, he was like, yo, apply for this program. It's at LinkedIn. And I was like, do they hire people that like aren't engineers? Like, what, like, what do you mean? He's like, trust me. Um, it's a it's a program they're building. I think you'd be great for it. And so he he held me down. Um, and for me, that was a relationship that I had built, right? Mm-hmm. And so that to me is, I've always seen that, but I didn't really appreciate what that can do for you until I've had it placed in front of me. And somebody really reached out and showed me something I didn't necessarily um, think was coming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, put, put me in a position to take advantage of an opportunity fully 
That's dope. What kind of um, content were you developing at LinkedIn? And in conjunction to that question, like, what kind of tone um, did, did you develop in, in your writing? Yeah. So at LinkedIn, I had a couple different jobs. So I was in a rotational program. And so we, we did, um, the first rotation was recruiting. So I recruited software engineers. Um, and then we did customer service. Um, and then there was a third rotation, which was technically going to be in sales. But I actually... Uh, found a way uh, the word I think the proper word be finessed my way back to New York City because mm. I was too far from home I, I was like miserable in California like I wasn't happy I, I missed my family you I had got jerk chicken between. in California yeah it's different there's like one it was like there's like a spot I found in Oakland and went ham and, and literally went in the freezer and got bought all the beef patties you know, like individual <laughs> beef patties I walked in there and was like I need all of it um, and just yeah, racked yeah. up so um, where are you originally from again? So I'm originally from um, New Hampshire. So that's where I was born. My okay. family is from Trinidad and Tobago, and the other half is wow. uh, from Mississippi. So I, it's like a very mixy black background, right, um, right. which which just means like very very good food to mm. be clear, but like very very interesting um, perspectives on like being black and like being American but like right, not yeah. being American like there's a lot of different things at play so it's like either cuckoo or cornbread yeah I, I mean it's, it's precisely it's like it's like jerk chicken or fried chicken like, get to both. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I but when I was I had like three or four different roles at LinkedIn the most recent one was when I finally got closer to content so I had actually pivoted and got an opportunity to run the influencer program and oh, so nice. if anybody's familiar with, with LinkedIn right you have influencers he's really um, you know, one of a kind people that write on the platform. So Richard Branson, Damon John, um, Bill Gates, uh, like movers and shakers, uh, Ban Ki Moon, the president of the World Bank, like just people of of real influence, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. And I was managing that program, so I was responsible for you know liaising with their team, um, troubleshooting, making sure people had the right angles. There were times where I actually got to edit some of that stuff, and I got to see like what it looks like. To have a full-scale content operation for a single person. So most people think that like some people do write their own stuff. Majority of people do not. Mm-hmm. Um, majority of people will dictate their thoughts and then have someone clean it up for them. Mm-hmm. So Richard Branson tells this story about how he actually um, will be on his jet and he will just like do voice memos and then he has a team that wow. will actually transform that into multiple pieces of content for each place where he positions oh, wow. himself. So the Virgin America blog, LinkedIn, um, sometimes his Twitter feed. Like, So he is, in fact, creating it from an ideation standpoint. Right. But the execution, because of who he is and what his time is worth, is dictated to several other people um, in his circle. And I think more often than not, when you get to a certain perspective, you are going to deal, you're going to work with a ghostwriter, you're going to work with somebody who is involved in making sure that your story hits the way you want it to, but it is still your voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that is something I've always been interested in. So that's sort of, the tone there was, it was professional, but more often than not, the things that resonate um, are platform agnostic. So I think sometimes people are like, I need to shift who I am to fit in this platform. Mm. Um, That's a okay theory, but it's actually a more important question to say, why is what I'm saying worth paying attention to? regardless of the platform like what am i saying here that i want people to understand and what am i giving them that will make that understanding worth their time 
um, as it relates to LinkedIn, people want to get better, they want to get smarter, they want to get promoted, they want to make more money, and they want to feel like they are more informed after the five to seven minutes they spent reading something. Right. Um, and so that's why you go. And so a lot of the content obviously was around the future, it was around trends, but people oftentimes skip over the expertise they already have in themselves and want to be experts in what everyone else is. Mm. Right. I know nothing about how to write about music. I'm never going to be a music blogger. I'm a fan. Right. I can tell you what my favorite rappers are. I can tell you what, what R&B joints I think are dope. I love jazz. I love classical. But I am not going to be a um, effective music commentator. Mm-hmm. What I can be is effective in the things and experiences I've had. So I can tell you what I believe content will look like in the next three to four years because I've had a couple of experiences that have given me some insight on that. Right. But mm-hmm. if I don't want to own that, that doesn't mean I should go try and be something I'm not. So I think part of the part of the game is really knowing what you want to talk about and being comfortable enough with yourself to talk about that. Right. At go. this point now was um was Blavity birthed around the same time when you were working at LinkedIn and you came to New York or how Yeah, how yeah, so actually it was. So we launched officially um, in July of 2014. So I was at I was in I was in New York at that time. I just moved. Okay. And so things were picking up. At that point, we were a video newsletter, actually. So we were actually... Oh, you started with a video newsletter? Yeah, so okay. one, our first our first MVP product, most people maybe remember this, might not, was actually curating um, videos for people. And so if you think about this time, Worldstar is at its peak. Mm-hmm. Worldstar is like flourishing. Mm-hmm. But we, in many respects, I think we're positing ourselves as the antithesis to that. So if you were like, if right. you could watch a Torque video... Couldn't you watch um, a video on like how to make a smoothie for somebody black, right? Like possibly those things could coexist. Right, right. And so um, you're also thinking about this is when people are really, really, really discovering YouTube stars, right? So Issa's popping, okay. Dormtainment is popping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got like the natural hair movement is at an all time high. It started yeah. when I was in undergrad, but like the tutorials, you got these vloggers, and tutorials, yeah. and so I'm like, they start killing who, it. Who like the thought was who. What if you were serving that content to the people that needed it the most mm-hmm. in a way that made it really easy for them to consume? Mm. What would that look like? Um, and so we did that. And then at the time, we had a, we had a, what we called the, the Blavity Bulletin, right? Which was, this was written content. And so at the end of every week, we would just drop pieces of content. So one of my first interviews was with uh, Anthony Fraser, right? And so that was at the heyday shout when they were Anthony. doing the, yeah, shout out to Anthony. Yeah. When they were doing the fast startup, and so we, we just did an interview with him, mm-hmm. and when we would launch that stuff, we kept seeing that the traffic would actually grow, mm. right? And so the traffic would actually begin to spike, and so that led to um, the first pivot, which was let us actually become a content hub. Let's let's gotcha. remix it and actually use data to um, tell us where the investment should go and what that should look like. See, that's an interesting point. I like that because you guys probably had a vision at that point of where you wanted to go but a lot of these you know um creative type companies the business model is forever growing like it's forever evolving sometimes even the mission statement is evolving sometimes people are not really ready to pivot or they don't know how to put pivot mm-hmm. but um that actually worked in you guys favor how did you realize you know when that pi- that pivot would work in your favor did you no longer did you know that was going to happen down the road or was it just like okay these are these are what we the, the analytics we've gathered and this is where it's got to go yeah, man, I think, you know, I could I could definitely, like, lie and be like, yeah, man, you, it was just a feeling. Like, that's not true. Like, I, I didn't think it was going to work, mm. frankly. I was like, how could we possibly compete content? Like, well, I don't I don't understand. Like, we, 
You know, like I think it's important to write. I think I think we have that, but I was like, we're we're starting to we're going to be punching above our weight class. Right, right. Um, and that's what you're doing when you're actually putting something out there, right? So the people making content, you're talking about BuzzFeed, you're talking about Mike, you're talking about Huffington Post. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about, you know, stalwarts um, in, in the game, right? That are driving right. people's perceptions of what's important. Um, and I was like, Could we, can we really do that? I got a question about it, like a big question mark. Um, but Morgan was like, this is where this is where we need to go. This is, where it's so it's, this is, this is what right, we're doing. Right. Um, and I said, okay. Um, where can I help? So, you know, I think data is important, right? Like you can't, like data helps you make better informed decisions. Now, it doesn't mean all decisions are always right. Mm -hmm. Data can have intricacies and depending on what type of data you are getting, you can tell yourself a story that's not true. So before you like take the data to make it what it is, you have to make sure you're getting the right metrics that match the kind of business that you're actually building, right? So Mm -hmm. obviously, page views for us matter. Mm-hmm. It's important. Um, time on site matters too. So yeah. how long is someone spending? That bounce rate is Right, serious. bounce rate's key. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, what kinds of content are they bouncing from? And if they are bouncing, are they going to different content? Because if they are, then you can optimize for more content like that if right. there's a subset of your audience that allows you to do that. Right. Um, and on top of that, right, we had um, more women visiting Blavity than men. And so that actually led to the development of what people now know um, as Blavity Life. And right, that's an extension of some data that you're like, wow, like, okay, so there is a market for black women here that want to talk about health, wellness, spirituality, entrepreneurship, and living their best lives. Absolutely. And those articles are getting shared widely. So, okay, that might mean there's an opening here for us to do something specific mm-hmm. that is dedicated to them and is focused. And so I think with data for anybody creative, it allows you to take bets and make a hypothesis and then to test it um, and not actually have to spend that much money because you can test the hypothesis a multitude of ways mm-hmm. and if you get the early data and early traction then it might necessitate you taking that risk and being like okay let's double down on this thing specifically mm-hmm. because this is what the data is telling us we should do as opposed to like I'm going to do 18 things I'm going to have an Instagram a Twitter a Facebook a Periscope and you can't do any of those really really well right 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 that's ill so how much how how much time do you spend um, investing in uh, a certain piece of content or a certain um, I guess lane of content before you make a decision on doubling down or perhaps abandoning or or revisiting that content? Yeah, I mean, I think for Blavity because it uh, it is an ecosystem of sorts. It we actually don't have to think about how much time. We necessarily spend because we have people creating that content. I think the time spent comes on the distribution and the sharing aspects. We have people consistently looking to make stuff and develop things and create different stuff, and it lets us be like, "Oh, this performed really well," and then then you actually get to ask questions around: Was it because of the time of day? Was it performing really well on Facebook? People wanted to talk about it and share it. What about Twitter? People mm-hmm. really like the image, or they really like the headline or the quote, and so you can actually take that learning back to the editorial team and be like, look, this performed really, really well. Let's think about more headlines like this if it's around this type of content. So the learnings help the entire team think about right what our audience actually wants versus what we think. Those two things are oftentimes not the same. Absolutely. Yeah. That's for that's, that's a message for a lot of young entrepreneurs. That's very true. Absolutely. So I want to know, like, what's the percentage of, I guess, um, of taste making content mm-hmm. versus 
this is what people are interested in. Mm-hmm. Let's give them more as opposed to yep. this is what, what we you should be interested yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's that relationship like? I can't, I don't know if I can give you an actual like number. I'd say we, I would say collectively, we try really hard to make sure that what we're giving out and what we're pushing out is substantive. Um, and then I mm-hmm. think because we're heavy in our social channels, we look at what things people are talking about and if we can add something valuable to the conversation. But only if we're able to get into inside of the conversation or add something. Mm. And if it's too late, we generally leave it alone. How, oh, here's another question. How, how late is too late? I think it depends, man, right? So I think a great example of this was Kermit, right? So the Kermit meme popped off, right? And so everybody was like... Hilarious. Hilarious, right? And so we caught that early, so we were able to curate mm-hmm. some of those best tweets, right? Very okay. simple. So you guys made your, own, made your own, got into it, whatnot. So we, we saw people in our community, like, tweeting this hilarious meme. And mm-hmm. then we were seeing the ones that were just going viral. Like, okay, like, for people that might have missed this, they might have been at work, they might have been traveling, whatever, let's curate something, and then let's make sure that that's our contribution. Purely curatorial, right? We're not saying this is good, this, but this is just, hey, it's what we saw. Right. It was funny. People enjoyed it. Here you go. That way, because people hate to feel late on culture. Right, right? Right. People hate to be like, bro, how did I miss that? Like, I missed the album release. Like, I missed it. And if you can figure out a way to make sure people aren't late, or if they are late, they're like, I feel caught up now. Mm-hmm. You can build loyalty. Um, and so I think in, in, in respects like that, you know, that's something that we're keyed into because that's the audience that we care about. And that's who we say we're committed to. So my feed was full of them. So it was easy for people to be like, okay, like, let's just grab those and give people something light, fun, engaging um, that they otherwise wouldn't be able to see. Okay. Good. What piece of content did you um, release, did Blavity release that caught fire? You guys were, I guess, astounded by just the just the response. <sighs> I mean, there's a couple ones. Um There was a piece last year um, that I wrote, and I, I I was astounded because I didn't actually think it was good. I thought it was trash. I wrote something called uh, 21 Things That Black Men Don't Hear Enough. Um, and this oh, was, you wrote that one? Yeah, I wrote that. And so I was just writing it because I, I think somebody had just gotten killed, and I was in my room, and I was just like, I am tired. Like I have, I have nothing to contribute here. And like, what can I say? And so I just like wrote what I thought was like a very, I didn't even want to release it. I actually sent it to one of our lead editors and was like, yo, I like, if this do you think is worth it, like, you know what I'm saying? Like do something with it, I don't know, it's whatever. Mm. Um, and so watching that like take off, people share it, uh, people just like really resonate with it. I like, you never really expect that. Like I didn't, I, I didn't write it because I wanted it to go viral. I didn't have the idea that it was gonna have virality. I was just like, I'm heartbroken right now. Mm-hmm. My homies, my homies are going through it, and we are like both feeling the same thing, but we're not talking to each other. Um, and so I think what was interesting about that moment was it was less about the piece; it was about the actual um, the the climate. And so I think the the people who um, are able to acknowledge the climate for what it is. And then add, and if they're going to disturb the silence, add something of value to it. Are the people that win? 
And I don't think they're the ones who focus on whether this is going to go viral, whether or not people are going to share it. I think you can optimize for stuff on the back end after you're done making it. But the makers, which is what I would qualify myself as, are the ones who I think are inherently focused on delivering the best quality and the most substantive work will stand the test of time. Like it won't matter what platform they're on. It won't matter if Twitter switches its algorithm or like it will not matter because the quality the of content. who they are and what they make mm-hmm. will always find a home. Mm-hmm. And the distribution of that will change and shift as it always has. But their voice will remain. So I think that to me was 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 I was shocked because I did not I didn't I didn't that was never my goal that was never my intention, but I think because it intersected a point and a conversation that I I had not seen people that looked like me having I think it allowed people that freedom. So when you vulnerability is directly correlated to um, people being able to see themselves. So it is impossible for you to make the kind of change you want to make without having vulnerability in your work, in your life. You will not. It, it, it doesn't work. Entrepreneurship is inherently vulnerable. Mm-hmm. If you want vulnerability, like, then you are essentially acquiescing to mediocrity mm-hmm. in your life. So I wanted to ask, too, from your, um, your, from your personal experience with working you know, on Blavity, when you, um, when you got to that point, it was like, okay, when you and Morgan and the whole squad got to that point, like, we got something. When did it signal off in your head? Because right now, Blavity, not only has it shifted from being also one of the best um, content providers, you guys are also, it's like a really community now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when did it get to the point where, for you, your personal moment was like, okay, yeah, we got something. Like, this is something that I want to dedicate um, my life to or dedicate, you know, the next amount of years to, to this passion, to this platform. Yeah, man. I mean, I think everybody, if you ask anybody on the team, they all have different moments, which I think is... Is, is special. I mean, there are a couple moments for me, right? Uh, ooh, Morgan at TechCrunch was a moment. So she was on stage earlier in 2016, um, and they just interviewed her about her time, her vision. Like, that was just, you know, I know Morgan. So, like, to see her on that stage and to get celebrated for who she is and what she's built and mm-hmm. the type of person she is, and to be like, um, there'd be like a young black CEO of a media company. And to be the 14th woman in history to ever raise um, over a million dollars in seed funding, like talk to him. I mean, that's that's different, right? Like that's that's, that, that's not like that's 14th, 14th, right? Wow. Like let's wow. be clear, like let's be clear about that, right? And I will, I don't care. Any interview I do, I make sure that people understand like who our CEO is because that is inherently more important to me than whether or not. I, like people know like my title or what I do because it's not an everyday thing um, and I think we need to do more to celebrate that story and absolutely. that narrative because that means that someone else can do it always be celebrated uh, absolutely always right so that was a moment um, I think <laughs> uh, we had a we had a women's conference um, this year um in Manhattan, we brought about 350 black women um, to discuss entrepreneurship, um, um, self-care, and um, community engagement in many respects. And being in that room, being like, I was like one of 12 dudes, like being in that room and seeing that quality of energy, I was like, okay, like this is different. This is different, right? Because we don't get, like, I think the, the ability to translate um, online 
influence to offline resonance is not to be taken lightly. Because mm-hmm. anybody can pop online in theory if you have the right formula, the right time, you get the right tweet, right. you can figure it out. Mm-hmm. But to have people spend their time, energy, and money to um, coalesce into a location to sit and then have someone talk to them mm-hmm. for an entire day, that means that you have you've broken um, like the fourth wall, as I would call it, right? So you're not right. Now it's deeper than what you read or what you saw or what someone told you about. Now it's something you can feel. And people wanted to feel what it tangibly was. And the same thing happened with Afrotech. It was people came in and they wanted to feel what it was like to be in a room of like-minded people that were celebrating and were excited and wanted to leave their mark in history. Um, so those were, those, were, those were a couple moments for me that I was like, you know, this is, um, it's really never been about me. Like, I've never, you know, I think I've always um, known that, that this was a thing. But, you know, as we've grown and expanded, like, you just, there's no, there's no, there's no room for my ego. Like, I don't, there's just no need. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no, there's no time for it. It's not, it's not helpful. It's not beneficial. That's I'm actually uh, reading that book you uh, recommended me. To, um, Ego is the enemy. It's Great crazy, book. Right? We're going to yeah. start a book club. Yeah. Jesus oh, book yeah. Book. We definitely Absolutely. should. You know? Actually, you mentioned um, um, Afrotech, and so mm-hmm. we got to get into it. It was your first year. I think it was the first production of um, mm-hmm. this summit, right? Yeah. Talk to us more about what Afrotech is and you know how was it this year. It was in the Bay, correct? It was in the Bay. It was in San Francisco. So Afrotech is um, a celebration and a convening of the best... Um, black entrepreneurial founders, tech employees, investors, and anybody that's interested in that ecosystem that sees technology as a portal to bring um, to bear the things they want to create. Um, you know, the, the vision for it, I think, comes from our collective backgrounds, right? Morgan, myself, Jeff, Aaron, like all um, have spent time in the tech sector. And so what we found is that more often than not, the way black people are portrayed um, or the conversations are happening to us, but we're not leading them. So if you show up in a room and they're like, oh, like, how does it feel to be the only black person in your office? That's corny. Or they're like, well, you know, what does diversity mean to you? Awesome, but like, <laughs> no. Um, or you get celebrated for being exemplary as if there are not other people that are equally as talented mm. or as, as, as uh, hungry. And so Afrotech was a conversation that I think needed to happen because people are building and making stuff and we don't spend enough time talking about that. Right? Mm-hmm. We spend enough time talking about like, what does it feel like to be a black woman in this room instead of asking that black woman, like, what does it feel like to be a senior engineer that runs a team of 12 people? Mm-hmm. What is that? Like, how do you do it? There you mm-hmm. go. What do you read? Uh, how do you stay sharp in your coding? Like, ask them questions that regular people get asked. Absolutely. Because they're really good at their jobs. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. Right. And so I think it's that, more than just being black. Yeah. Right. And we're like, we're gonna be black for the rest of our lives. Clearly, we enjoyed that. <laughs> it's lit. Like this net. Like what's next? <laughs> um, so I think you know that was that was cool to have those those types of people engage and and um, have a meaningful um, you know dialogue about that and just have that social conversation as well. So um, it went really well, man. Um, people really enjoyed it, and I think. You know, it's 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 gonna look bigger and brighter in the future. 
That's up. absolutely. So as an entrepreneur, how how is how's that experience been um, shaping? This is a redundant question, but how's that experience been shaping your own experience? Like largely, entrepreneurship is a lot of planning, a lot of focus, but on the other side of it, it's a lot of blindfold and just throwing darts at the wall and mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. what stick. How, how's that? How's that experience been for you? You know, coming from uh, I guess uh, environment that. Because before you said you worked in very large environments, yeah, um, and you felt that you might have gotten lost in the sauce. How is it making your own sauce? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's hard, right? I think I'm I'm in my mid twenties, so I think this is just like a in theory like a sort of messy time in life. Um, you're just trying to figure stuff out. You you know things are shifting and changing all the time. I I don't. It's been weird, man. I haven't really ever qualified myself as an entrepreneur, not because I, I don't think it's true. I think I've, I'm entrepreneurial in nature, but I, I have, um, you know, like a variety of things I want to do. I think in this, in this context, um, it has exposed me for who I actually am and not who I thought I was. And that's, um, painful, but it's also refreshing because it means you don't have to pretend to be something you're not. And that's the quickest way to be unsuccessful. I've found is to spend more time thinking about how people perceive you and less time thinking about who you're telling yourself you are and if you're actually living that story. Or, more importantly, if you actually even want to live that story about Mm -hmm. yourself. Um, And so a lot of us have these ingrown scripts for ourselves, right? Like, I could never do this because X, Um, right? That's the most common one that people say, right? It's negative, but it gets a little more insidious when the script is like, well... I will only ever be this because this is all I've ever seen. Thusly, I will not take this risk because X, Y, and Z might happen. But here's the thing about X, Y, and Z. That's the worst case scenario. You have no idea what the best case scenario could even look like because you're not in the game. You're not even on, you're not even on the bench. You're in the, you're in the stands. Hmm. Uh, so I, I, for me, I, I found this to be a really, really important period in my life because it has made me very, very aware of what matters and what doesn't. And to be cognizant of those things um, and how they come to bear on like who I am becoming. Uh, Because that's more important. Because I have to be myself whether or not I'm involved with Blavity. Like I still have to wake up and be Jonathan. So if Mm -hmm. I am unsure about who I actually am, it will have a direct impact on anything I'm building. Um, so a lot of people have, I, I don't, I stopped conflating um, what I do with who I am. Like those things are separate. Mm. They, for me, they have to be. It's mm. the, like what I do is the products I make. I'm the, the sum total of what I bring to bear. And I can be evaluated on my effectiveness, my consistency, all those things. That is what I do. So any critique of how I'm performing is not a critique on who I am. It is a critique on what I have done based on the criteria that has been established for me to be successful or unsuccessful. That's not Jonathan, the person. And so making that wall, which was very hard, very uncomfortable, I didn't have one because a lot of us put incredible amounts of stock in the places we work because we want that to define us. And then when they don't anymore, you sort of lose your identity. And you're like, uh, well, if I didn't do this, like, who can I possibly be? Mm-hmm. 
answers anything you want. Mm-hmm. But you have to know, you have to at least take the time to figure out who you are to, to, to get to that point. Um, and a lot of 2016 was me trying to get that and unfurling all the things I thought defined me and like letting those go. Just being like, you know what? Nope. Don't care about that. That's irrelevant. Mm. What is um your personal, we are on Driven Minds. What's your personal driving force? Like what drives you? What drives Johnson to come out, come to work, put in... Put in a hundred percent. Make sure his platform is is, is as um, effective as possible, and and being, you know, uh, a voice for a lot of uh, um, minority millennials. Yeah, man. I think it's a couple things. I um. I I just think there's more to do. Right? I've never. I'm just consistently unsatisfied. Like I have a very persistent. Um, drive to try and make sure that the things I'm building outlast me. So I'm not really interested. So this is, again, like I stopped caring about whether I would be rewarded for any of the work I'm doing right now. In any context. Mm. Like I stopped caring about that. My goals, my entire scope for how I used to set goals changed. Because I was like, this stuff is like incredibly fleeting. Mm. And it does not bring me joy. So, was that a relief for you when you when you decided like to? Not I mean, it's frightening. It's scary. It's 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 a, it's a, it's a very recent. Um, it's a very recent um, epiphany, if you will. But I just realized that like those were other people setting those, and me being like, I didn't have I didn't have like a clear sense of what I wanted. So I was like, yeah, that seems like a decent goal, right? Like, yeah, I'd love to, you know, be on this list or get notified for that and. Um, those to me are more benchmarks, right? Like, to me, that's like cool. Like I can, you know, that, that's that's an important thing for me. But as a means to, def- it's not going to define whether or not the work I was doing was meaningful. And so that um, difference makes the work much more important because um, there's always more to do. But even deeper than that, I. Am driven by the idea that like I don't want to live my life and at the end of it have a question of if I've done everything I could have all right like I do not fundamentally feel like I'm here to somehow be um, locked into like an idea of what I'm capable of right and so like for me I've had to unbutton a lot of the things that when I was younger I used to use like those scripts I used to use to define what I was fully capable of and in the process of doing that it's forced me to um, create a new dialogue for myself that I have with myself about what we're doing why we're doing it and what we are capable of doing Um, but the drive is that I would, I at the end of my life, I would like to have nothing left. Mm. And in order to do that, I have to bring everything to bear that I currently have in the time that I have, right? Because I think every, I, I'm a believer in that things operate in seasons, right? So you are in a specific place and time and you're doing something and those seasons can shift. And you have to pay attention to those shifts. And you have, that's why, that for me is why self-care is important, right? It's not important so you can go and have like the, the uh, loose leaf tea and like the wicker candle and take like, a picture on like the 1200 thread count pillowcase and sheets and have like your journal out like that's like cool right awesome that's like a cool 350 likes 
and maybe you get an influencer deal off it. For me, I think self-care is about like you actually taking the time to figure out if you're doing the kinds of things you should be doing. Because it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It could be a great thing and not the right thing for you. Those things are entirely, those can coexist. Um, and dealing with that <laughs> inconvenient truth is much harder, but I think more worthwhile than accepting the um, beautiful lie, which could be, oh, like, I'm just going to do this because insert reason. Because if you don't know yourself, you'll never, you'll never have that conversation. Like the conversations we have with ourselves right, right. are the most important because um, it, 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 it sets your tone for what you think you're capable of in the context of what you're doing. Um, so I think I'm driven by that. And then I'm just, I've just seen a lot, man. I feel like I, there have been situations in my life where um, I'm, I'm blessed to have retained my, my sanity. And so with I, I have my ability to think critically and to reason. And so if I'm not um, utilizing that to its fullest potential, I am, um, in many respects, disrespecting the gifts that I have. And I think that that to me is like a big fear. Like I don't want to sit here and waste what I've been given. And I don't want to feel like I'm not doing everything I'm capable of doing and bringing to bear the things that I believe I should be making and building and showcasing. Um, while you're here. Yeah, while I'm here. Because you don't, I, I've seen people, I, you see people come and go, everybody has, right? People just go and you're like, wow, man, like they, they left way too early yeah, it's crazy. and they didn't do it. They didn't, they didn't get a chance to like live or mm -hmm. do any of the things that you knew. Like I know people more talented than me that are not alive. Mm -hmm. That to me is frightening because they like, they, they never got a chance to even like see some things. Mm. Like I'm not, I'm not, I can't play around because I've, I've seen it up close and I'm telling you like, if you don't have perspective yet, it'll come. And if you're not ready for it, it'll, it'll like bottom you out. It'll have your whole it'll have your whole life upside down because then you'll be like, yo, why am I here and this person is not? And they had like three times the talent, four times the work ethic, mm -hmm. and now I'm just out here and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. That'll have you really think about your life, like That's factually. True. Just am I doing anything of substance right now? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've had enough of those encounters and experiences where. Um, there's a piece that can come when you just accept that and be like, I'm not, I'm not for everybody. Um, and that's cool. But I think I have some things that people can benefit from and I need to figure out how to get those things out and refine them. But the first guide is like believing you have that. And so that's part of what drives me to at least give as much as I can in the places I think it matters. Yes, sir. Yo, that's fly. I was just, my bad, I was just like, <laughs> lost it. Nah, because there's yeah. just so many um ill things that you just said. Like, one of the things just to track, backtrack is that you said sometimes something might be good for you, but it's not necessarily right for you. Uh -huh. And yeah. I think I think that's a really profound point is that, you Jeez. know, that you, you might become complacent or tempted to become complacent. Had there been any such experience that you felt that previous? Yeah, there were all types of experiences where I felt that. Um, you know, so I grew up. I grew up. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire, which, um, for anybody that's unfamiliar with the United States, is the state right. Like when you see Massachusetts, there are like six other states above it. So it's, I don't really fault people for not knowing because no one ever looks up. But 
It's yeah, one of those. I, I didn't know that. Um, it's okay. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, um, my parents made sure that, like, school was super important. Like, mm. that was just, like, major, right, for my mom and my dad. And there are a lot of reasons behind it. But I think the, the, the prevailing one that I appreciate most now is they wanted me to have um, the ability to see things and then make my own assessment of them. Um, and so when I was in high school, my brother, um, when his frat brothers came down to spend, I think it was Thanksgiving with us or something, and he mentioned to my parents that I should apply to boarding school. And my parents like laughed, and they were like, what? And then I was like, boarding school, what's that? So I like hopped online, um, did a little research, and then was like, wow, like, so there are these places in these states close to mine where you can have smaller class sizes, you can ask more questions, you live with the people you go to school with, it's sort of like college, but not. And, like, seems like a decent, you know, education. They have a 100% college acceptance rate. It's pretty good. So then I basically um, sent away for all these flyers, got them, and then sat my parents down at the kitchen table and, like, presented this idea for, like, my high school future. I was like, hey, mom and dad, here's the thing about where I go to school now. I know it's good. But what if I told you there was, like, a better thing for me? And they were like, what? And I was like, but wait, there's more. There's scholarships too. And they're like, okay, keep over <laughs> listening. Um, and that was like one of the earliest moments in my life, I think, where I I just knew there was more. Like I, I could feel it. Like I've always had these moments in my life where I'm like, ah, they're like growing pains, right? And you can ignore them, but they start to come out in other ways and your body will start to manifest them. And, you know, you'll, you'll you might, you might, it might be hard to sleep. You just feel it. Like you just sense that like, this, there's a shift and it all, it, it's never comfortable, right? That's the thing. Where I think too often we spend time seeking comfort when that's not really what we want. Like we really want significance. We'd take significance if it came with discomfort, but we don't know what we actually want. On top of that, we don't know who we actually are and then we don't know what we're capable of. And so you combine those three things and you'll definitely settle. Because if all you know is all you think you're worth, then you have no reason to move. And you can't you can't you can only evaluate risk as what might happen to you, not what you will make happen. And mm. I don't think I don't think we mm. talk about that enough. Like I don't like like we don't tell the whole story about what it actually feels like to be out here trying to make your dreams happen and like the 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 downside I found to any any marked success or any time somebody approaches you and is like, yo, you're, you're popping, you're doing this. It allows you to edit life, right? So you're, you're at, everyone's at the base level, you're grinding, you got a little bit of success, a little bit of pop, people see you like, oh yeah, da, da, da. Popping. you raise a little bit, right? Yeah. And that space between where you were and where you are, that's the story, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's being written by you in, in theory because of the work you're doing. But then other people start to come in and leave, you know, leave feedback, whatever. But because you're here, you can then double back and erase things you don't like. You can just cross, I don't want people to know about that. Just cross out that line. They don't really need to know that, like, it wasn't all me. I had a team. Like, nah, just, yeah, it's fine. Mm -hmm. And then you get you get to basically tell a story, and people will believe it because we, we love success and the things that come with it more than the cost associated with it. Facts. So if you get to a place of success or a level at which people now deem you something more than you used to or you, you surprise them by your competency level they will give you free reign 
to tell them what they most want to hear. Mm-hmm. And so then you get to you get to like that's the, that to me is the most frightening thing. And isn't like I'm gonna be it. successful, but you could you could just lie, yeah. and people won't check you. Just because, because they just they, they're so tired of feeling like they don't have what they want right. that they'll do almost anything mm-hmm. to feel like they can get where they feel like they should be in the first place, which might not actually be what they want. Very I know true. a lot. I've met a lot of people this year, and I'm I'm grateful for it. A lot of them are not happy, and these mm. people are they are lit. I'm and it's different. They are they are doing that. They they have the things that you want. They have the influence in theory that they can bring to bear and they are it's not that they don't like what they have because they worked for it but they're still more they're still unsatisfied so, they're inherently just like i don't really know and i've talked to some of them still avoid it's a void that's what i'm saying and people doing this work now i'm grateful i've 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 been through uh aggressively harrowing situations in the past three to five years i'm grateful for them because it has forced me to have a conversation with myself that I would rather have now. Mm. I don't want to have this conversation when I have kids. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to have like a, a, a seed and be out here wondering if I'm like who I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I will, I, I don't want to have, I just had a, I just had a goddaughter and like it, it literally changed how I viewed life because I was like, I am now tasked with being in this little girl's life indefinitely. Mm-hmm. What do I want to show her? Who, what kind of person do will I want to be for my goddaughter? Who is about a week old? Mm-hmm. Like, who do I want to be when she's five, when she's 10, when she's 16? What kinds of things do I want to place in front of her to show her what she is fully capable of? Mm-hmm. Right? I cannot answer that question without first having the conversation with myself. And being real and being honest mm-hmm. and being like yo I'm not who I'm supposed to be right now there are things I'm not consistent with I can talk a great game but I'm not always able to withstand certain types of pressure more often not the pressure from myself so how am I going to address that what kind of life do I need to start building a lot of us think we got to be have a bunch of bread or whatever before you can start I think curating the life you want I feel like you can actually, there's decisions you can make about who you spend time with, what you spend time on, that will get you ready for the kind of life that you actually want. Because it's all about inputs. You're just like, I, like this person is not a great input for me. I'm going to spend aggressively less time with them. I need to build this core competency. I'm going to get these books and read them. Mm-hmm. Not to tell people I'm reading them for me. I'm reading for me. Not for you, not to show that I'm like intellectually superior and I can like do a cool book report and drop these gems, but because I actually want to become a person I am proud of. Mm. And not to show it. You know what's um, interesting? Because I read your, the, um, one of your most recent articles and I like that you spoke on the, uh, the more trials and tribulations of this of a millennial creative creative go getter. You yeah. know what I mean? Talking about the darker times when you don't have money for this or you move into your apartment and you can't furnish you can't furnish it, but you know, you still putting on Instagram showing people that you're doing something yeah. or you just pretty much touch every point of like, you know, what a lot of us are you know, are going through that people don't want to show because nobody wants to see that side, right? They want to yeah. see the highlight reel. 
And I just thought that was important. And um, how important is it to you to, you know, really push these conversations in culture? Like, yes, we're not all the way there yet. Yes, we are working towards our goals. And it's okay to, you know, to struggle on this side while you, you know, while you build up. How important is it for you to, you know, just uh, it's I, I, I feel like it's part of the reason I'm alive. Mm. So recently, like, I've just discovered that, like, the things I really wanted to change about myself or the things that make me the person I'm supposed to be, right? So I realized that, like, if my only gift to people was that I can take the transparency in my life and sh- and talk about it, then that's enough. Mm. That's enough. I don't think that's the only thing, but, like, if that was it, that's enough. Because I, I have a different context for how I think about life based on what I've been through. And it's not because my life's been any harder or more real than anyone else, but my gift is that I don't talk about the nightmare after it's over. Like I talk about while I'm going through it. So for me, I think that gives people the space, hopefully, to be like, you know what? I am in this place, but like my circumstances don't have to dictate how I act in this place, right? Because most of us, like want our circumstances to change and then act like our behavior would change like none of those things like that's the wrong equation i feel like i my my (laughs) circumstances have not changed the way i want them to but my behavior my thought i have worked tirelessly to shift in this in this past couple months because it allows me to see past where i'm at People with vision don't spend time thinking about their circumstances because they're locked in on what they know is happening, right? It's like Absolutely. landscape view. Hell yeah. Right? A lot of us are on Instagram. We just scroll up and down. You can't really... They just gave you the ability to zoom. Sometimes you don't need to zoom in. You need to zoom out. Because right. you are like, wow, I'm just stuck here. But this, the landscape is like, hey, I'm actually going somewhere. And it doesn't look like where my homie to the left is going because you're not supposed to go there. If you wanted to go there, you could go there. But you really don't want to go there. Because that's not for you. And that, to me, has like given me, I think, the space to feel more comfortable. Be like, yo, I don't want what success looks like for you. I'm fundamentally disinterested in what success looks like for most people. I, I, I am like, you know what? If you're going to eat out here, like, eat. Like, do whatever you want to do. Like, you want, you, you want to, you know what I'm saying, double park the Phantom in front of the Popeyes on 135th of Bulletproof Glass and, like, Fact. get a three-piece? Like, do that. Whatever you need. I want to see you do that. Right? That's that's lit. I would love to see that on my Dang, block. That's actually one of my goals. You know, you don't gotta come at me like that. Get this six dudes to the three piece. That's what's up. Right, right. That's what's up. But I think I think I think having that, you know what I'm saying, I don't I don't necessarily need that. Yeah. Now there's some other things that I I definitely want, but getting clear, like having that tunnel vision on like what it means to you. Right, like part of why I write the way I write isn't to just like be a bleeding heart. It's because that's what I have. Like mm. I didn't want to write anything else because that I feel like that's what I was supposed to write. Because mm. I was going through hell, and then I was like, I'm out here pretending like I'm the only one. It can't be it. I can't be the only. I can't be the only person that's like dealing with this. Like that's this true. year was crazy. Right. Like this year was super hard for everybody. I don't know a person I talked to this year that was not going through something super serious. Mm-hmm. Forget the election. Like people's lives were getting torn apart this mm-hmm. year from a variety of angles. Yeah. And the problem is a lot of us. I think the danger with like media and like where we are is that you can edit everything. That doesn't make it real. So you can spend as much time as you want doctoring and shopping, but like 
we spend more time than that than we do actually fixing ourselves. So we like edit all the parts of our life to make it look like it's what it isn't. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's energy wasted. Because I could actually just spend time trying to repair myself. That's a better use of my time. Mm-hmm. So if I'm like out here looking tattered, but at least I'm like getting the help I need, I am, I am unashamed of that. Right. Fundamentally. People don't realize too how like, you know, that's, it's empty. When you're using all this, you're using more information to promote yourself rather than to actually feed yourself. You know what I mean? It's an empty happiness there. Rather than if you took all of that, took your break and you took all that information actually to feed and grow yourself, expand your mind, that's what, you know, leads to just, you know, mental happiness and, and stability and, you know, just less emotional over over things. So I thought that last article you wrote was just amazing, man. Even from the people who were trying, who have, you know, they're, they're trying to get their websites up and they procrastinated. It took them 11 months because they're yeah. trying to find the right, they're trying to yeah. create this new content series, but, you know, they want to make it appear like that's like, we all, we all, um, it's all trial and tribulations. We all are working towards next steps. And yeah. the fact that you were able to talk, talk about that and bring those conversations out there was like incredibly dope. Appreciate that, man. It's, it's small wins, man. I think the other side of it is a lot of it's just like we if you're a high achiever, you probably struggle with celebrating your own wins. And it's because you're not you're on the next, right? And I think we don't take enough time to reward ourselves for those small wins. No small wins add up, and that's what you need. Again, like knowing yourself allows you to be like, I'm going to celebrate this moment because I was not able to do this three months ago, but now I am, and that matters, and that's progress. Mm-hmm. And that's enough. Again, it doesn't require other people. And so when you when you have when you have that that if you you've been working on that, if that's something you're focused on, then you don't have to sort of take. I think we I think a lot of us we wait we we really wait for these cosigns like we we really really do and I understand it as a person who has and in a space where like cosigns are actually helpful and sometimes they can drive business or or open new doors. Um, you know that, that those those are cool, but the cosign that you're waiting for um, should not get in the way of the work you need to do to become what you think you are capable of. Because the cosign, if the cosign doesn't come or it comes or not, like I, again, I still have to be me, uh, and that I think has been a, a defining um, factor in like how I've tried to orchestrate. Uh, the relationships I build and you know like the people I spend time with because I'm I, I, I just like the, these titles go away and so then what you're left with is like the body of work that you have um, laid out and I would much rather my body of work be in the people I've at least impacted and so that's a long game though and so I, I've just decided that like I'm willing to that's the game I'm going to play Mm-hmm. And I believe it will net net put me where I need to be, but I'm not. That's not for everybody, and that's totally fine. Uh, but it is for me, and I'm willing to pay the price to be in that game, even if it requires like these short, this feeling of short term um, no's and you know trials or whatever that looks like. Um, you know, I think we'll, we'll net out. Absolutely. So that's one of. Wrap it up soon because I know you um got a bust a dance move, but yeah. um I do want to ask where is um where do you see Blavity going in the next you know decade? Uh, yeah, how long? Yeah, man, it's crazy. Uh, Blavity's an ecosystem, so um, 
I think there are parts of that system that are going to be uh, fueled and generally um, expanded. You know, I see Blavity um, having a bigger footprint in traditional media as it has always existed, right? So I think you're going to start to see Blavity um, on more screens than you, you, you have in the past, potentially. Nice. Um, I think there's an opportunity for Blavity uh, to continue to have these marquee events and, you know, to bring people together physically in mm. person and to, like, really grow that and establish that as a thing people look forward to. I think there's a gap in a space for people to really get together and have it not be made in America and have it be something, like, which is great, but I think, like, there's a there's a lot of space for us to collaborate and connect. And to do that in person, we lose that, but that in-person engagement, I think, is what sets... Um, us apart in many respects culturally because I just think there's something really unique about that because it always feels like a family reunion even if you don't know anybody and that's beautiful nice. um, I think you know the um, how uh, the distribution I think will continue to expand and grow um, I think there's places we haven't been yet I think we've done a really good job of being in sort of metro cities but I think there's places that we haven't even touched yet or touched the service, what we could do. Mm. Um, you know, I think below Mason-Dixon line, there's a lot of work we could do in the South. There's a lot of work we could do in the Southeast. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff we could do, you know, in the heartland, like, right? Like the places that, um, I think there's a lot of our community is in places that were talked about in this election cycle. And so I think there are voices that we don't hear from in places that we've never gone. And I think, uh, being black is um, a multitude of things and involves a multiplicity of perspectives and we haven't heard from nearly enough yet. So I think the ways that people can share what they've seen, where they're from, and what matters to them um, will be, for me, um, the most important um, legacy or lasting bit of legacy that I hope um, Blavity can can leave and at least at least give people the ability to to realize that they can build and do and, and really be whatever they would like to. Nice. Yeah. That's well, some yeah. fly. John, thank you very, very much for speaking with us. Yeah. Of course. Just talking to you, we know that your your work is, is not just coming from a creative place, but it's coming from a place from the heart. It's coming from a place of, of love and genuine or yeah, I hope that was a good word. That's Maybe good word. a word, but possibly word. we'll consult word. that later. <laughs> uh, Google later. But um, they want to thank you for coming out. Of course. Indeed. Very quickly before you uh, dip, tell us where we could find you on the social. Yeah, social everything is uh, J O N two underscores Jackson. Um, I'm I'm on I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on the gram, off and on, but like I'm usually on Twitter. So I don't do much. Yeah, okay. chill out. But yeah, you can find me there. Um, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yes, um, like, subscribe, review if you um if you feel on this podcast. I like to thank we it's actually I think we we've done this in front of the most people today, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We, we actually have an audience. audience. Shout you know out to Dot and I and Natalia, appreciate y'all. Word. And uh yeah. That's about it. <laughs> Stay driven. Stay driven, y'all. This episode of Driven Minds Podcast is brought to you by Michael Levin of White Curry Realty. If you're looking for a new place to live or real estate investment opportunity in Orange County, New York, contact Michael Levin at mlevin at biker.com. That's M-L-A-V-A-N at W.
I-C-H-E-R-T.com.